certain brands uh, take on a generic sense, okay? Like Xerox became the word for copying back in the 60s, and Kleenex is the common term we use today for a tissue, right? Well, the Mack truck became the symbol for anything, any big truck, any big tractor out there. And the culture back then kind of used that term. Uh, so uh, you, there was a, a phrase, if you saw a, a muscular guy like a wrestler uh, or a stocky linebacker, you'd say, he's built like a Mack truck, you know, big and hefty, okay? Uh, and then it became uh, kind of a thing that people would say when there was a traumatic event that hit you hard, it was, I feel like I've been hit by a Mack truck. Now, the title of the message today, Why Jesus Came, a Mack Truck Warning. You know, why Jesus came, that sounds like a nice pastoral thing. We talk about God's love and, and Jesus' sacrifice, and all that's true. But hidden in this passage, if you turn to 10, page 1022 in your pew Bible, we're going to read this because I want you to see this. Hidden in this passage is a warning that can hit you and me like a Mack truck, all right? We're going to be in 1 John near the end of your Bible there, and starting at verse 4, I'm going to read through verse 10 together, okay? All right, read it and then think about it, starting at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness together. You know that he appeared in order to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is it evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now we're in the series on uh, that you may know that you're saved. This is about eternal security and knowing about your own salvation. And last month we talked about our adoptions as sons and daughters of God through our new birth. Through being born again, our new parentage is evidenced when we abide in Christ. Practically speaking, uh, this means that we demonstrate our thankfulness for God's gift of salvation by our desire to practice righteousness. We also discussed purification. We clarified that none of us is going to be as pure as Jesus, but we become pure in a lesser sense, like a two-dimensional image of the real God. And the reality that we will never be as pure as Jesus does not exempt us from the purification process that we often call discipleship. Beyond our thankfulness, our motivation includes 
our ultimate rewards uh, in heaven when Jesus judges the works of the saved. But even before this, there's this promise of the return of Christ in the future. Now, in our passage today, John points back to the first appearance of the Christ and gives the same challenge. And his main point here is that being a child of God is incongruous with the practice of sin, and hence, that's why he tells us why Jesus came the first time. And he addresses four groups in his letters. First of all, the believer who knows that they're saved. Then he addresses the believer who's not sure, who has doubts, which is possible. And thirdly, he addresses the unbeliever who thinks that he or she is saved, but is deceived. And lastly, the unbeliever who knows they're not saved, who doesn't care, who doesn't think there is such a thing as salvation. And while all of this passage applies to all of us, it is that third group that John is primarily concerned about here, as that is the one that is at the greatest risk of deception at Satan's hands. And he wants to be patently clear that one cannot claim to be a child of God and continue to sin. If one who claims to be a Christian continues to sin, that one denies the purpose of both the first and second coming of Christ. So to lay all this out so we can try to understand this, and you need to hear this out so you understand what he's saying, he gives us several reasons why Jesus came. And the first is to deliver us from sin. You know, the greatest problem of humanity is sin. And God is the only one who can solve that problem. Everyone who makes the practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, note the phrase, practice of sin. This is not a one-time transgression, acknowledged and repented of. and, and uh, it, This is the habitual practice of sin. It's a settled disposition of the heart. It's saying, I know what God forbids, and I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. John says this is the equivalent of the practice of lawlessness. So one way we might put this is that those who are practicing, those who practice sin are breaking God's law and rejecting God's rule over their lives. Uh, the continuation of sin is actually rebellion against God. It's saying to God that you hate his law and despite what you may say to others, you reject his rule in your life. Now, the consequences of that rebellion are pretty serious. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So John tells us that Jesus appeared to take away sins. Another John, the Baptist, exclaimed that as Jesus approached, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, why is Jesus qualified to take away our sins? This is basic, but because in him there is no sin. He's just like that spotless lamb in the Old Testament that was necessary to be sacrificed for the atonement of sins. This is a theme that we see not only in 1 John, but throughout God's word. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake 
he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And just uh, last month as we studied the account of the, the trials and crucifixions, Jesus was not protected from suffering just because he is God. In fact, he suffered more than any person ever has or ever will. He also experienced life and knows every single temptation to which we are subject. Uh, again, the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And finally, Peter tells us in uh, 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is one of the fundamental truths of our faith, that Jesus came, he lived a sinless life, he suffered and died as payment for our sins, then he arose in victory over that sin and death. And verse 6 is a logical consequence of verse 5. It's vital to make this connection because he came to take away sin. There is no sin in him. So it says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, this is a key point right here. It is incongruous for one to continue sinning who claims to be a Christ follower to abide in the sinless Savior whose purpose it was to take away sin. You can't have it both ways. Remember at the end of chapter 2, Jesus or John implored little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And then near the beginning of chapter 3, John says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as as he is pure. Point here is that the practice of sin is inconsistent with genuine faith, with purification, with abiding in Christ. It's a warning sign to the sinner that if ignored, it doesn't mean you've lost your salvation, it means simply that you probably are not saved in the first place. Now, we've got to address a few kind of side issues that tend to confuse this, this discussion. First, some have misinterpreted this and other verses to demand sinless perfection. And so they will rationalize about an impossible standard, which, because it's impossible, can be ignored. And when you look at some of the versions, like the, the uh, New American Standard says, no one who abides in him sins. And there's, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Obviously, the King James. Now, we always interpret the word with the word. And if you remember, back in chapter 1 of 1 John, we studied verses 8 and 10, which say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10 says, we make him a liar, and the truth isn't in us. So, interpreting the word with the word, the requirement of sinlessness for salvation is inconsistent with John's own, own teaching there. The ESV that you read has this phrase better because it says keeps on sinning or makes a practice of sin. John simply says that if I'm saved and I abide in Christ, I will sin, but I will not continue in sin because I hate sin. This Another topic that may be difficult to reconcile here is what some call a besetting sin. Thomas Akempis, uh, a theologian in the 1400s, addressed this in his devotional book, The Imitation of Christ. 
And there he talks about the struggle that so many Christians have with habits that are sinful. Now, he was talking about people who indulge in excess, like overeating or indulging in something else, maybe laziness, but not gross sins like adultery. And then, if you remember what Paul said in Romans 7, he said, the things that I know I should do, I don't do, and the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. Paul recognizes that we have those, those things that cause us to falter as believers. And this seems to be what, the, what the, again, the author of Hebrews addresses in chapter 12, where we get this whole concept let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely or entangles or besets us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So, it appears that you can be saved, yet struggle to shake a habit that you know is a sinful excess. Of course, that doesn't even necessarily mean that you don't desire to escape from that sin, but the level of our desire vacillates, okay? So it's easy to be serious about going on a diet after a big banquet. And it's easy to break that diet after you've gone all day without food, right? We've all experienced that. And this is what happens particularly with, with habitual habits that involve physical or sensual appetites, okay? So uh, not to knock anybody, but when the broils come in here with their cinnamon rolls, you know, it's okay to get one. We encourage that, okay? Now, if the broils were to have a customer that says, I want, a, I want six dozen every week, they might have a clue that there's a problem there. You, you got it? Okay. Uh, so this, this whole issue is hard for all of us. It's a reality. Our repentance is greatest when our appetites have been satisfied, frankly. But when we're hungry, or we perceive through our senses, oh, that smells good, we have a growing desire to practice whatever particular sins may be. But that desire, I'm sorry to say, or at least we should be glad to say, is never too much for us. As Paul reminds us that no temptation, no temptation, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will, all, will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So where does that leave us? We need to be honest with ourselves. The reason we continue with these little islands of sin is because we have a heartfelt desire to continue those sins we do not have a heartfelt desire to stop them. And we've got to face reality. Stop kidding ourselves. We commit sin because we want to do that sin more than we want to obey Jesus. Now, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this. On your sheet, I've listed a, a link to uh, a website or an article that may help you in this particular area of uh, what they call besetting sin. So I'd encourage you to look at that. Finally, this may not have occurred to you, but what about the parable of the prodigal son? Was the prodigal saved and then just want a, went on a binge of sinning and then returned to be restored to his earthly father? Or was this an example of a lost person who finally came to his senses and returned in repentance 
to be restored to his father. Now, if you look at uh, research this, you're probably going to find arguments on both sides. However, while this is a great story about repentance and forgiveness, I tend to think that the parable is not primarily about the prodigal, but about his bitter older brother who gave the appearance of faithfulness to his father but had a spirit of entitlement and self-righteousness. If you look at the setting of this, which occurs in Luke 15, it's that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Then the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the older brother is just like these hypocritical Pharisees. And Jesus was talking to the hypocritical Pharisees at the time. The prodigal, on the other hand, had true repentance. So, the other, in other words, I think the parable is generally about sinners and particularly about the self-righteous, but does not address the subject of eternal security or whether the prodigal was lost or saved beforehand. And my point in going into this is that we should not simply assume that we know what Jesus was trying to say about eternal security in this parable. So, when does this come up? Well, uh, we might be tempted to say, well, yeah, my son or my daughter, they're just a prodigal. They'll, they'll come back. Well, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Maybe they're not even saved. Uh, yeah, we're all susceptible to this. I have been. I remember uh, many years ago receiving a call from a man who identified himself as a leader at the national headquarters of a conservative denomination. And he was weeping. He said that his son was a pastor in northeast Kansas. And he was married to a beautiful wife, and they had several small children, and the wife was expecting one shortly. And he had run off with another woman. And when they came to my office, I was trying to console this wife and the pastor's dad. And I said, well, he must be a prodigal. He'll come back. I mean, it's a good way to rationalize these things. But frankly, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen. And neither do you. So be careful about this this whole issue. Yes, it's possible for a believer to stray and come back. However, if the sin persists, John makes clear here that it becomes more and more likely to at least the rest of us that this person simply is not saved because you cannot reconcile a practice of sin with abiding in Christ. And so instead of looking for excuses for sin, we should claim the victory handed to us by Christ's death and resurrection. Living in Christ while living in sin, is a living oxymoron. Such a person, as John says, has not seen him or known him. A second reason that Jesus came was to destroy the works of Satan. Now, the victory over our, this, this victory is over our flesh internally, but it's also over the devil externally. Of course, he is a great deceiver, and his false teachers and antichrists are his henchmen. They try to convince us that sin is harmless, 
And avoiding it is silly or, of course, legalistic. So John responds with fatherly command when he says, little children, let no one deceive you. That deception can cause us to embrace a counterfeit Christ on the doctrinal side, and it can also subtly and gradually lead us into a life of sin morally. John's rebuke to this attack is quite simple. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The deception is defeated by a righteous life that evidences our salvation through faith in Christ. We are what we live out. Doing what is right does not make us righteous. Rather, it proves that we are righteous as Christ is. He is our example to give us that strength to live righteously. In Galatians 2, Paul captures this concept where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. So we cannot be deceived into thinking that we can live a life of sin and be righteous before God at the same time. So John shows us the other side in stark contrast. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is actually the first time that John refers directly to the devil. And we're going to come back to this, but he then moves on to one of the clearest declarations of why Jesus came. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So in military terms, the Christ child invaded enemy territory with a mission to search out and destroy the opposing force, Satan. And we know from verse 5 that those works are sin. For believers, through no merit of our own, the penalty of sin was removed. And by salvation, the new birth, the power of sin over us is neutralized. And the last reason that Jesus came that John talks about is to identify his children. The false teachers in Antichrist always have and always will teach that we can be righteous without doing that which is right. They want us to believe that all we need to do is show up for church every once in a while, uh, maybe give some money to a charity, uh, wear a cross. And certainly there's no reason to get into theological questions like whether Jesus is God or certainly not that messy crucifixion and blood thing. Just make sure you put something in the offering plate when you're there. And hopefully everybody here understands that when one relies upon works for salvation, the Bible calls those works filthy rags. Yeah, the works may be good, but only Christ can pay for our sins. Works don't save us, they simply evidence salvation. But there's more to it than that. Upon salvation, Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So beyond these evidences of obedience and good works, as a follower of Christ, a child of God will continue, will not continue in the practice of sin. John here gives us three very clear descriptions to identify who is a true child of God. And the first is a new birth. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's sin abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
You know, John said that a follower of Christ is born of God. In his gospel, John relates the words of Jesus when Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, came to him and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, knowing what he was thinking. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, cannot be saved. Now, we are often cautioned in uh, today's uh, Christian culture to avoid the use of Christian speak or lingo. That is, words that are biblical, but unbelievers cannot and, and do not understand. Uh, but notice, and certainly being born again is, is part of Christianese, uh, but notice how Jesus does not avoid difficult concepts. He is a master of mystery to draw out questions. And so Nicodemus clearly didn't understand. He replied, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, Nicodemus was a leader and a teacher of the law, so he was held to a higher standard, and Jesus rebukes him for his unbelief, challenges him to think more deeply. And Christ's followers will understand that being born again relates to the, to the doctrine of regeneration. And that's one of those 75-cent words that theologians throw around. But what does it mean? One simple way is to understand that we are, uh, we are generated, we become part of a generation at physical conception and then eventual birth. And then we are regenerated by our new birth or our salvation. One, uh, one statement that I found defines uh, regeneration as the work of God's grace in which we become new creatures. Specifically, it's a change of heart brought about by the Holy Spirit through the conviction of sin, bringing a response of repentance or turning away from sin, and faith in Jesus and his work on the cross to pay for that sin and satisfy God's perfect justice. So it's conviction, repentance, and faith. That would be a simple definition of regeneration. John says that a new creature cannot continue the practice of sin because God's seed abides in him because he was born of God. We're not sure, but that seed seems to be the new nature that we acquire at the new birth. A second way to identify a child of God is that he is no longer a slave to sin. If one has not been born again, it is simply impossible to consistently live out a righteous life. Satan and sin are so powerful that in our unregenerate state, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin in John 8, and Paul says likewise in Romans 6. However, once you have been regenerated, Paul says, you have been set free from sin, and you become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, all believers can find security in knowing that the power of sin will not win out over us. And yes, you will never be sinless, but you are confronted, you're comforted with the fact that you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So he's going to pick you up off the the dirty floor of sin, and steady you 
on the path to righteousness. And while this brings tremendous security and comfort, once I realize that if it were not for Christ's sacrificial payment of the price for my sin, I would be, remain a slave of sin and Satan, well, that humbles me. This is all a result of my new birth which I can, in, by which I share in his righteousness. Finally, the last way that we would identify, uh, according to John, a child of God, is that he loves others. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And whoever does not love his brother either. So looking ahead here, uh, verse 10 is a bridge between God's warning that started back in chapter 2 with, and by this we know that we have come to know him and has continued on up to this point. And the next topic that we'll address, Lord willing, on the topic of his love. John gives us two simple tests to distinguish a child of God from a child of Satan. He will do what is right, and he will love others. It's that simple. Not only do these two concepts overlap, but they're related. Uh, it has been said that love is righteousness in relation to others. It's kind of like the golden rule. It can be boiled down to this. If I am born again, I will hate sin as my former slave master. I will do what is right, and I will love others. Why? Because I am a child of God. On the other hand, if I remain enslaved to sin, I will make clear that I am a child of Satan, and I will continue to practice sin and fail to love others. So our lives reveal our parentage. So what does this all mean? Let me say that personally, up here, I am making no judgment about anybody's eternal state here today. As you know, it is not my call, nor anybody else's call. Ultimately, even for you, it's not even your call. Yes, we might embrace Jesus as our Savior, but it's on his terms, not ours. So he will make that call. So I think the vital lesson here is this. If one thinks that he or she is saved, yet continues in the practice of what the Bible calls sin, John wants to send a clear warning, and so that's why he wrote this letter to you and me. If you have an ongoing practice of sin in your life, when you read this letter, and it does not convict you to the point of repentance... I guess I would suggest that you should have some serious questions as to where you will spend eternity. You are forewarned, and you have no excuse for your failure to repent. Now, some may say, John, he's just another man. It's not his call, and I would say, you're right. John will not determine your eternal fate. But our trust in the reliability of the Scriptures is based upon the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired John and the other New Testament writers to teach us what God wanted us to know. However, some have come to the conclusion, or they interpret the Bible to say, we only pay attention to what Jesus said. That's the only thing that really matters. 
Uh, and that's not the belief of the conviction of the elders at Lion and Lamb. However, for sake of argument, what did Jesus say? If you look at John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his. And if you were around for the, the uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount, you know that Jesus said some other things as a warning. He said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who says, Lord, will be saved. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day of judgment, Many will say, Lord, Lord, did I prophesy and cast out demons and do many wonderful works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeah, these passages can hit you or hit somebody else, like a Mack truck. There's an important question here. Would you rather see the Mack truck approaching and change course? Or would you rather just kind of listen to the soothing music of deception fall asleep at the wheel? Who loves you? The person who smiles knowing your sin, but, you know, they don't want to bring it up because they don't want to offend you. Or the person who loves you enough to warn you that if you continue on your present path, you will fall, even though that warning hurts your feelings. Jesus, John, and the other New Testament writers love you so much that they're willing to bruise your ego. In fact, Jesus loved you so much that he voluntarily descended from heaven, lived a sinless life, and was subject to all the passions and temptations that you and I experience, yet he gave his life, suffered for us, and paid the price that you and I owe. So if this or any other passage that you read causes you to doubt your salvation, thank God that he has warned you. It is not too late. But please do not put it off. Repent of that practice of sin, whatever it may be in your life. Be sure you are a child of God because none of us knows when we're going to be held to account. When we are, we will want that decree of adoption to be signed. We will want to be in his family. Moreover, understand that Jesus came to save us from something that has eternal consequences, sin. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you have warned us. Lord God, it cannot be clear. We give you all praise. 
Lord, if we are subjected to a practice of sin, Lord, help us to deal with that. Lord, help us to live righteously as he is righteous in the power of Christ. Father, we just lift this up to you. And we want this message to settle in. We also want others to know. In a winsome way that will keep them engaged, we want to tell others about the love and the saving grace of your Son and our Savior. We just give you all praise, and we pray that you would use this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.